Our story begins 25 years ago, in a distant land filled with magic, anthropomorphic beavers, conflicted dragons, and all sorts of other fantastical creatures. Every intelligent creature in the world heard The Voice, a psychic broadcast that promised unlimited wealth and power to whoever could break the Seven Seals. The Voice sparked a brief golden age of adventuring, with people of every cut of cloth traveling around the world trying to find out exactly what these Seven Seals were. Then war broke out between the dominant nation, the Red Kingdom, and the Unjanath, a secretive, isolationist culture of elves who lived in a forgotten, far-off corner of the world. That war waged on for nearly 20 years, with no one understanding how it started, until finally a peace treaty, brokered by Princess Ravello Red, brought an end to the hostilities. The princess disappeared shortly thereafter, and then the Unjanath retreated from their home, that remote corner of the world known as the Outlands. That brings us to today, where the Outlands Exploratory Company seeks to catalog the Outlands and uncover its secrets, discover its true nature, battle the powerful foes that live there, and simply try to stay alive week from week. Welcome back to uh, Tales from the Outlands. My name is Christian Hoffer, and I am the Dungeon Master of the fabled Outlands campaign. Uh, For those of us who are listening to this podcast for the first time, uh, Tales from the Outlands is a very special podcast about a special Dungeons & Dragons campaign uh, that involves 18 different players. Every episode, we are joined by one player from that campaign. This week, we have Jeff Patterson. Hello. Hello, Jeff. And as always, we are also joined by our producer slash player, Luke Herr. Hello. Uh, Now, if you've listened to our podcast before, um, we tend to have split each episode into three parts. This episode is going to be a little bit different because uh, there's been a little bit of a time gap between our last episode, which if you're keeping count, and I know that uh, most of the podcast distribution software i don't know what what platforms uh, podcast platforms um you know don't really do a good job of numbering these things but this is technically episode five uh it won't be labeled as such on your uh i don't know platform i'm i'm really struggling tonight guys podcatcher Uh, yes that thing podcatcher i like that um but this week's episode because we have so many uh D&D sessions to cover, uh, we're splitting this episode into two parts. We start by recapping the recent events of the Outlands campaign, talking about the various adventures, misadventures, disasters that our players have faced. And then we do a deep dive into a piece of lore from the campaign that our guest player has uh, talked about. Um, Now, before we jump into things... um, Uh, I will use this opportunity to mention, uh, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, whatever your podcatcher of choice is, um, and visit us on our very own website, 
www.talesfromtheoutlands.com. And if you enjoy having a quest to do, tell one other person about this podcast. Uh, you know, there's lots of people who like lore, but the only way stories become legendary is if they're shared enough. Yeah, the, and this is a very unique D&D uh, podcast. You know, most D&D podcasts are either uh, Let's Play podcasts in which you actually listen to the campaign, or they're more of your technical stuff, talking about D&D news, D&D um, strategies, you know, how to play D&D. This, this isn't really none of those. We want you to think that you're kind of um, sitting at a table listening to people talk about this D&D campaign that they enjoy so much. Um, so, um, to, to summarize what's been going on in the Outlands uh, prior to this, um, you know, like once again, I'm assuming that every, every episode is somebody's first ep- uh, episode. So, we have three groups. Uh, they play on Friday, Sunday, and Tuesday of every week, and the teams are relatively set. Um, the Friday group is known as the Terror Team, and in recent weeks they have been dealing with a mysterious village, the village of Granacht, which is uh, uh, populated mostly by halflings and seems to be protected by a mysterious entity known as the Great Goat of the Woods. Uh, meanwhile, the Sunday group, uh, known as the Buddy Brigade, uh, has had some turnover in their ranks uh, recently. They have been kind of dealing with a few major plot lines. Um, Luke, what, what are some of the big things they've been dealing with uh, prior to what we're about to talk about? Uh, so we have been friends with Cartrump, who is a vampire who has a maze that leads to one of the seals under his tower that he has been, for the most part, more than happy to let us in. We had saved him from being stuck in a vampiric state of being stuck under a stake. Yeah, I was about a to living say, he, death. Yeah, he got staked uh, a co- about a month ago, or a couple mm-hmm. months ago. That was our great turn against Kartra. Mm-hmm. Uh, two of our players got sucked in or two of our characters got sucked into the shadow fell. Uh, one of them being my previous character Cleaver and the other eh, being fine. I, it has been like two weeks since we have played and my mind has just vanished for campaign stuff. So, uh, but yeah, we've lost uh, characters into the shadow fell, which is a problem. And uh, one of our, NPC pals, uh, his romantic interest showed up without a heartbeat, retrieved a scale from our friend uh, Ashmaker, who is a big old red dragon, and uh, we don't know what that scale is going to be used for by a mysterious love interest. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that later on, because that really came to light during the sessions of um, uh, the D&D sessions that we're going to talk about tonight. Finally, our third group and our newest group is the Toon Squad. And Jeff, what has the Toon Squad been dealing with basically since its formation? Uh, basically, our complete and utter uh, demise is what we've been facing the last several weeks. And us just trying to dig ourselves out of a hole without digging about five more holes for ourselves. Yes, uh, the uh, Toon Squad has been dealing with uh, this powerful mage known as Velez. 
you can learn a little bit more about her um, in our last episode, uh, which is titled Ferris and Velez. Um, and both Ferris and Velez play a huge role in what we are going to talk about tonight. Um, but let's just dive into things because there's there's a lot of things to talk about. A lot of like cool twists and turns, including that big um, Ashmaker twist, um, which, you know, uh could have turned out to be really bad for the party um but we'll we'll dig into that in a little bit so uh, the the first session um since we last recorded an episode uh involved uh granacht so previously uh we learned that the great goat of the woods which is this like mysterious semi disembodied entity which may have connections to the feywild um has collected uh, a large flock of goats who may or may not have once been people. Um, and this is all building towards the Horned Moon Festival, um, which is this mysterious festival, which uh, they crown some sort of uh, winner of the festival. And then that winner is very likely turned into a goat. But to prepare for this, the villagers of Granacht requested uh, that the terror team go and cleanse the old pool of the goat's wood, which was the sacred site for the great goat of the woods. Uh, it needed to be cleansed because, and we talked about this in our last uh, episode, uh, the bone taker, which is another recurring antagonistic force in the outlands, uh, corrupted this pool. So the terror team needed to complete a sacred ritual to cleanse the pool. And then uh, as they did so, they had to deal with um, the bone takers lingering presence, trying to disrupt them and of course, trying to kill them. Uh, but the, the ritual itself was relatively easy to complete. And then they discovered that the pool was actually the resting place of uh, two very old skeletons, one of which belonged to a satyr and the other, which uh, other one of which seemed to belong to a naiad. Um, now, the interesting and somewhat foreboding thing that they learned was that the satyr skeleton was also missing an arm bone. Now, in exchange for cleansing the pool, the terror team, uh, they've been completing tasks in exchange for information, as the great goat of the woods seems to have some sort of powerful innate and innate connection to the Outlands itself. And so they gained information about one of the Seven Seals, these powerful magical artifacts that are at the heart of um, the, the campaign. Uh, they decide to uh, inquire about the Seal of Stone. Now, as Luke mentioned a little while earlier, the Seal of Stone was supposedly under Cartram's Tower, this ancient tower in the middle of a place called the Sharn Barrows. However, the terror team learned that the Seal of Stone actually was taken from that place by the Unjanath, which are these this elven culture which had previously abandoned the Outlands. And it now resided, the, the Seal of Stone was now with the Unjanath in a great forest to the north. So that saved uh, the Buddy Brigade from a few weeks of um, toiling under Neath um, Cartram's Tower, which was probably a good thing because in between sessions, between the um, 
the Friday session and the Sunday session, a little bit of additional information came to light as um, one of the party's players, and I don't recall if we talked about this in the last episode or not. I don't believe so. Um, one of the party members of the Buddy Brigade went and wrote a letter to the Vampire Cartra, um, trying to get his take on this escalating situation that was occurring um, in his region. See, as we talked about in the last episode, Cartrum has a complicated history with Velez, as they were both lieutenants, subordinates, it's complicated, with an even greater vampire, this evil vampire named Golthias, who was killed by the black dragon Trixie Alana. Now, we talked about how Trixie Alana had come back to the Outlands, um, uh, to the Outlands Exploratory Company during our last episode, uh, last episode. Um, but several people want those de- uh, want that dragon dead. One of those people was Cartrum, and Cartrum, uh, who has been considered to be something of an ally of the company up to this point, kind of revealed his true colors. So, keeping all of that in mind. Luke, what happened? Uh, do you remember what happened? Yes, uh, yes. Uh, and the uh, uh, with the events that happened after that. Uh, yeah. So one of the things was we knew that Velos of the Void is is a criminal who escaped from the Shatterkai's prison, and so we decided to go to a Shatterkai encampment that we were familiar with in the mountains, the Ramas Mountain Range. And when we went there, we ended up finding that the Shatterkai's base was under assault by a group of ghouls. And uh, after defeating these ghouls, we found out that they were agents of a lich known as the... No, um, so the ghouls were working for Velez. Uh Ah, but the Lord of Skulls, who is the lich, is aligned with Velez. Yes, now... Um, and the Shatter Kai, the reason, so the Shatter Kai had run into the company, uh, and, uh, you know, the various members of the Outlands Exploratory Company over the course of the last couple of months. And, um, they hadn't come to the outpost. And when, you know, they were kind of pressed, like, hey, why, why don't you come to the outpost instead of out here in this remote mountain range? The reason was, was because there was a traitor in the camp, um, who was working for this lich known as the Lord of Skulls. Um, so that led to this pretty big discussion about what does the Lord of Skulls want and how is the Lord of Skulls trying to uh, manipulate things? Um, so uh, I guess we can talk about that more in a little bit because that actually yeah. took up a lot of the time during one of our future sessions. Uh, the other thing that came out of that session was, was that... We got magical uh, scrolls that would help stop Velez. Yes, which would prove a critical part in the uh, big, massive fight that occurred uh, not too long ago. But anyways, so while the Buddy Brigade was dealing with the Shatter Kai, Jeff, what was the Toon Squad up to? So while uh, the... Buddy Brigade took that meeting off our hands. I know at one point uh, Toon Squad was looking at taking part of that, but we had very important business to attend to 
that being March of the Penguins 2. So, you know, we initially uh, chose this, this mission, which turned out to be, uh, well, let's say there were some voices involved uh, from Christian as the dungeon master uh, around, you know, helping some penguins uh, go to uh, an endless lake and help penguins enter the lake. Uh, and so this was our return because we needed to come back and uh, the Sendless Lake was going to appear again. And so we needed to be able to protect uh, these penguins as they were coming back. Uh, so as the Toon Squad traveled there and eventually got to this area, and it starts as just this big field to start with, we happened to run into some Sahu again. Uh, and it turned out they wanted to create a non-aggression pact with uh, the Outlands Exploratory Company. And so after, let's say, a lot of discussion between uh, the party and our... Uh, what, what What's uh, Ulysses again? He's a, uh, he's a paladin. He, yeah, he's a paladin. Paladin who, who happens to know a little, little bit of their language. Uh, after much, much negotiation, we managed to come to an agreement on a on that non-aggression pact and for them to see uh, some number of Sahuagin come, you know, kind of out of that uh, elemental plane of water, which happens to reside uh, underneath this lake. And so after we kind of came to that agreement, the lake started to appear, but then out of it came uh, the Kraken, which Christian, did you say it was like a mini yeah, Mini it was kraken, like a, it was a deformed, kraken. it was a deformed kraken. It was like a variant, basically a toned down kraken, a kraken that wasn't going to kill you guys, <laughs> like on site. Yeah. So after after all of us, uh, all of us in the Toon Squad had uh, much debate after our several weeks of continuously digging ourselves holes that we would have to crawl out of, we had a strange hesitancy to attack this kraken. Uh, until I believe one, one of our characters decided, I'm going to try to talk to it. And I believe I totally Christian... I about that. Yeah, I believe Christian, uh, the Kraken, uh, when we were able to talk to it, just said, food, you look like food? Yeah, like, I'm going to kill well, you guys. I'm going to kill I'm you. I'm a Kraken. I I'm shoot lightning. Kraken. Like, I'm going to fry you guys and then eat you. <laughs> yeah, no, that was... That was one more like unexpected things. I was like, "Oh, we're going to have a nice fun kraken fight," and everyone's like, "I don't know, guys. Maybe this kraken's our friend." I believe uh, my my character Zark eventually asked, "Friend or foe?" and then just kind of held his bow up semi menacingly. <laughs> and, and then once once it became clear that no, this kraken is no friend of ours, we did uh, finally dispatch that kraken. Uh, and then at that point, then uh, turns out several hundred Sahuagin, uh emerged from from the lake, which uh, I must say in that moment had me rethinking our non-aggression pact. So I was thinking, oh, you know, what's this going to be? 20, 30 Sahuagin? I mean, nope, several hundred. No, it was it was a full restock of the Sahuagin. So uh, the Sahuagin were one of the campaign's early foes. They um, were uh, they they are based in a place called the Sunken Swamp, 
and specifically a site known as the Sunken Temple. And one of the Buddy Brigade's first missions was they decided to go and explore the Sunken Temple and then stole uh, these uh, a pieces of a broken seal, um, which uh, allowed the Suhuigan to be connected to the elemental plane of water. Now, that had long-reaching consequences to the entirety of the campaign. And it was like, what? Like, I want to say the Buddy Brigade's, like, second mission, like, ever. And so they basically do a smash and grab, uh, take rob the Sahuagin of a way from, like, connecting with their people, and, um, you know, then just run out. And so the Sahuagin had were basically hostile up to the point that they basically just didn't have the bodies to really oppose the Outlands Exploratory Company anymore. So now the Suhuigan are back, but they claim that they're not foes. And I guess we'll just have to uh, trust in our non-aggression pact for the time being. And you know, they even offered, uh, offered our party a chance to help, I believe, unlock some secrets. Uh, of the scrolls or unlock their power if uh, yeah. we needed to find out that information, which I imagine as we progress through our campaign is a thing we'll need to find out. Yeah, the interesting thing about the seals is is up to this point, you know, we the parties know that the seals are these powerful magical artifacts, and they they even have had at various points in time in the campaign. Um, two of the seals in their possession, along with these seal shards. But the Suhugan are the only group that seems to have any knowledge on how to actually use them. So, you know, this, this could turn those seals into things that we know we need to keep from being destroyed into, like, active magical items that could benefit or harm the campaign. And they also have a connection to Re, uh, who was Ashmaker's companion, who was a were-shark who was cursed uh, by Ogkire, who is one of the gods who the Sahuagin follow. Uh, we don't know if they're really monotheistic at this point, do we? No, no, it's there's it's it's a little bit difficult. You know, you guys don't know yeah. about uh, don't know too much about the Sioux again because you um went into their home and stole their most sacred artifacts basically mm-hmm. right out of the get-go do they also have another guy that's named round dog <laughs> for raza oh man so um for for those for those of you who are missing the uh the reference og kyer the two-tailed whale is a very thinly disguised reference to the pokemon kyogre um as um i guess fun fact about the outlands campaign um how how did a pokemon end up becoming a god in this campaign besides the fact that i am a a big pokemon buff and actually write about pokemon professionally uh well the answer is it's because D's established ocean gods all suck they're they're all awful like the the like the best one was like oh uh, like I was like maybe I'm going to use like Umberly like Umberly's like you know a pretty pretty decent one then I was like reading her titles and one of them's like the sea bitch and I'm like no no we're not going to go down that route no thank you no thank you and like every ocean god was like awful <laughs> so I was like 
I guess I'm going to have to make one up myself. Kyogre, you're you're pretty godly, aren't you? You big blue whale, you. And so that's how our Sahuagin ended up worshipping, you know, Okaire. I personally always enjoy a good, good reference or uh, something I can, like, base it to another geeky uh, sort of item that I can relate to. But, um... Yeah, so Re was cursed by Priest of Ogkire to become a were-shark, and so we need Priest of Ogkire to remove the curse from him, so he is no longer a were-shark. Yes. Uh, uh, well, so Re was bitten by a pers- uh, someone who worshipped Ogkire, and that can only be reversed by a uh, Ogkire worshipper. Um, and, you know, that's, once again, the entire Re situation, the has become very complicated very fast um but we'll talk about that here very shortly um but first actually let's talk about that now we keep on like like alluding to it you mm-hmm. know i'm calling an audible let's talk about the Ashmaker and re situation luke what the heck is going on there all right so Ashmaker was initially set up as this third faction that was seeking to break all the seals because he was promised a lot of power and treasure and other things that a red dragon would like. And he kept running into the party, uh, wanting to poach members of the team, wanting to prevent them from dying. And eventually we found out that Re, the were sharp when we ran into him was in a similar situation. Re ended up needing to have his life saved and, called in a favor that Ashmaker promised in exchange for his freedom. And because Ree is a scholar, that's why Ashmaker wanted him. The fact that he's a were-shark is not too bad either. Uh, one of the things we found out, because we were all very interested in Ree's life, was that there was a woman he had left behind who he had saved and was in love with and it was complicated and so the buddy brigade being the buddy brigade wanted to reunite them and thus started a long correspondence uh to try and find her while also uh making a less successful correspondence to find a priest of ogkire which was essentially just getting a bunch of letters back that were why are you trying to Find a priest of this sea monster god. What What is wrong with you? Uh, so eventually, Ree's partner, girlfriend, comes out. And one of the weird things is uh, she's very quiet, does not have a heartbeat. Uh, when the base got attacked, she got out of that unharmed. And... Meanwhile, Ashmaker has been pursuing a romance with Ellie Windrow, who is an NPC scout, not to be confused with Monk Ellie, who is a player character. And the names are spelled different. Mm-hmm. It's a L count difference. Uh, but with Ellie Windrow's help, we have been showing Ashmaker that, no, breaking the seals are bad, you delightful large red idiot. Do not break them. Also, here's a woman who you're going to have feelings with. Also, we're slowly finding out about your past. Uh, and so recently we found out that Re had requested a red dragon scale from Ashmaker, which he provided, 
we don't know what that's going to be used for, but it could be used for a lot of evil things. And so now the Buddy Brigade has gone into the awkward situation of, oh, uh, maybe you shouldn't trust this person who's been a close advisor and friend since uh, his girlfriend's back and there's going to be trouble. Hey, nah, hey, nah. <laughs> yeah, and the the other the other piece here, as we mentioned previously, there's this lich known as the Lord of Skulls that's been the part the, the parties don't know it. Well, most of the parties don't know it, but he's been lurking about in the background of this campaign for a very long time. And um you know um when when they found out that the Lord of Skulls had an agent or agents uh in the outpost that that brought up an awkward an awkward situation because uh mara Bree's uh romantic interest slash possible agent of a lich is not the only person connected to the outpost and to the outlands exploratory company that's missing a heartbeat the other person, unfortunately, you know, he, his his character actually guessed, you know, he, he was one of our earlier guests. Um, you know, Malgador um, has been heavily implied to not have a heartbeat by several characters. Now, unfortunately, Malgador cannot answer any awkward questions of, hey, buddy, uh, are you working for a lich? Because he's in the Shadowfell. So um, there's there's this situation, and, and I guess neither of you were on our. We we actually had a, I I think on the Friday, uh, one of the Friday groups. You know, a lot of the players were on. I think we actually had like twelve people on the uh, like the Zoom call that we do these campaigns. Um, and um, I I did bring up what would have happened had the the players not figured out that Ashmaker might have been compromised because. Jeff, the Toon Squad was lobbying pretty heavy to bring Ashmaker into the fray and to this upcoming battle with Velez, weren't they? Yeah, we we were tasked with trying to figure out, uh, you know, what sort of assistance we want from other people in the Outlands, and you know, the natural assumption of a bunch of people who don't want to die is to say, "I want all the dragons to help us." Yeah. So give us the red dragon, the black dragon. Uh, Every every ally we've made along the way, we want to bring them. Uh, and so I mentioned because you know one of the part one of the other players asked like what what would have happened if Ashmaker would have come to this fight, and uh, I I'll tell you to this straight up, um, uh, Ashmaker would have been turned into a Dracolich. Can I get an explainer on Dracolich? Uh, that is an undead dragon uh, with uh, with with all the powers of a dragon but also all the powers of an undead not not something you want to fight no no <laughs> so, so our party wouldn't okay so well, well i get ahead of myself but our, our party could have been super dead yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't have just been the bicorn yeah no it was um you guys, as as I told Shay, who guested on a previous episode of this podcast, um, was the one who kind of like put put all the pieces together and like laid it out. I was like, yeah, you you really saved the Toon Squad's bacon because the the Toon Squad 
with this entire Velez situation, they were already looking at a tall task. And, you know, the entire idea was Velez wasn't being passive about this upcoming showdown. She knew that the Toon Squad was likely going to try to do something. And so she wanted to have contingencies in place. Um, and what better contingency than turning the company's greatest ally, this this surprisingly good and complex and nuanced and caring red dragon and turn him into an undead um, creature of evil, you know, controlled by a lich. Yeah, that would have just been sucks town USA. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been really bad. So the Ashmaker situation is still ongoing um, in order to, in order to kind of punt that one down the road a little bit, uh, the the tune or not the tune squad, the buddy brigade convinced Ellie Windrow um, to take her boyfriend? Question mark. Partner. Partner. Eight That's stars out of ten interest. Um, to uh, take go go off somewhere and go go on a little like vacation somewhere. Get far away breakfast. from the company. Yeah, bed and breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so while that was starting to play out, the terror team, you know, wanted to get back to uh, what was supposed to be this winter's big storyline before Velez kind of showed up and screwed everything up. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, back back in uh, November. Uh, the outpost was attacked by the Clockwork Army. This um, massive collection of Clockwork constructs uh, being controlled by somebody. Uh, the the players have their suspicions on who that is. It is very likely a Duragard named Murgle Rackhook. And so the Terror Team, well, the other two parties have kind of been dealing with things. The terror team's like, you know, this guy came to our camp, killed a lot of our friends, blew up the place, and he's getting away scot-free. And also, the Clockwork Army is actively, not only do they have a seal in their possession, they are actively trying to get more. We need to do something about this. So they traveled to a known site where the Clockwork Army was operating, this brass antenna site. Now, you know, we can't really call them antenna within the context of the campaign because, you know, what would a bunch of characters living in a uh, medieval equivalent fantasy world know about antennas? But it was a brass antenna site, an antenna site used to um, coordinate the various actions of these clockwork constructs. The terror team being the terror team, they destroyed it, just wrecked the place, you know, murdered a bunch of constructs. But they also found a couple of valuable pieces of information. First of all, it appeared that the Clockwork Army was mapping out the Step Canyons, this region which had has not really been explored by the company. So they found a couple of interesting sites. The other thing was they found a some sort of um, navigation device or some sort of some sort of device that seemed to. Um, be connected it, it, it seemed to uh be almost like tracing or um i'm trying to think of the best way of putting it the closer the closer it gets to the clockwork army's 
main like their headquarters uh the 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 louder and more frequent it pings so they now have a way to track the actual controller of the clockwork army which is all building up to what will likely be our next big fight assuming that the parties don't go completely sideways which let's face it this is a dnt campaign it could go completely sideways you never uh, know what the toon scott squad will uh, desecrate next yes i i will literally put nothing past you guys um but yeah so uh coming up here at the end of february the beginning of march will be our long-awaited showdown with the clockwork army but um enough about that uh the clockwork army wasn't the only faction that you know got some spotlight um the buddy brigade went to the underdark for the first time what what happened there luke uh yeah so for those of you who also remember the uh episode about ellie monk ellie uh shay found out that her character's potential daddy might be in a coma from poison that was sustained in the attack by the clockwork army and so she has been petitioning the group to try and find a solution. And so we decided to head into the Glimmer Night Caves in the Underdark. The Underdark being like the above land, except there's a land above it. That's not just clouds or like sky land bull roar. Uh, to try and find some gold lichen that would cure uh, Gloria Ellendale and Billis. Billis being the potential father. Uh, we uh, came down as a group and met some drow that were led by Abladra uh, as they were being attacked by, I'm trying to remember what... Hook horrors. Yes, hook horrors. Uh, which are just blind, horrifying, hook-handed hook uh, monstrosities. Yeah, they're like kind of like vulture-headed mole creatures with hooks. Mm-hmm. And bear mentality if bears travel in larger packs. And laid eggs. Yeah, oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, they lay eggs. Yeah. They're just weird, weird creatures. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Uh, so they were looking for a group uh, called the Soul Spiders who follow Lolf who is a canon D&D goddess. Christian has explicitly said he has eschewed a lot of the bad drow lore, because if you're unfamiliar, a lot of it is... Um, a lot of it is just straw feminist bulls, bullshit. Yeah. Like, women want to be in charge so they can treat men like shit that's what the fem yeah no it's gary you you did bad there you did bad there yeah and it also ties into this entire the the, the drow which is ironic because dungeons and dragons most iconic character is a drow a good drow ranger you know dritz duorden um but you know the drow are seen as a as a whole as being evil creatures they they are dark elves they are evil they all worship an evil goddess named lolf you know they're basically you know spider worshipers and stuff like that and you know they're all they they're all bad and so that is a a preconception 
you know, if you've played Dungeons and Dragons before, you know, that is what you likely have had to deal with. You know, yeah. the, the drow are evil. I mean, that even bleeds into other games. Um, you know, Pathfinder, the drow are even worse. Hmm. Uh, i mean i mean the underdark is literally oh what's a standard race we should make an evil version of them that lives underground like you've got the durgar and you've got the binbilvidin yeah the uh the the i forget there's the gray gnomes i think is what they're called is the the easier to explain (laughs) what those are um but you know i i've talked about and it's funny this has come up multiple times about my my belief on how to run D campaigns if you are an intelligent creature that resides in the material plane i think it's really silly to assume that an entire group of people are good or bad you know that would like that that's like saying that like oh uh, everyone who lives in the in in michigan is evil um uh everyone who lives in canada is evil everyone who lives in north korea is evil um, that's that's just wrong-headed, and it's you know jingoist. Yeah, it's it and it, it's 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 not a it's not good world building from a storytelling perspective, mm-hmm. um, and also it it really feeds into these like really backwards ideas that um, you know uh, help explain some of what's wrong with society today. Mm-hmm. So in my fantasy worlds, you know, like I said, and and this extends beyond just, um, you know, people like, you know, like people or elves or, you know, things like that. The, you know, we have a red dragon, you know, red dragons are traditionally evil creatures in Dungeons and Dragons. And there are very definitely evil red dragons that exist in the world of the Outlands. However, Ashmaker was presented as somewhere, you know... In the alignment chart, he was presented as more of a neutral leaning evil, and through the work of the party, he he's definitely now neutral leaning good. You know, um, he he's complex. You know, he, even even dragons can be complex. You no, know, now does that apply to everything? No, of course not. Beholders, of course, beholders are evil. You know why? Because they're nine eyed floating sacks of gas that come from another plane. You know, like they 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 originate from the far plains. Mind flares, mind flares. Of course, they're evil. They're they're Lovecraftian horrors. You know, they 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 don't come from our world. They exist in another plane that is beyond our mortal comprehension. But also, you can just be like, oh hey, this is a beholder that was born from a dream that a beholder had about nice things happening and now you got a nice beholder or like you can it's it's jazz you can do what you want oh yeah provides where you need but uh yeah anyways sort of getting back on tangent the most important D character is pun pun who is a co nope sorry not pun pun time not pun pun time uh so yeah we ended up uh trying to find uh or trying to help her and find the mushrooms and uh ended up fighting a bunch of driders which are sort of spider centaurs that loth makes when people displease her and uh got the mushrooms we needed and we also got a stone that will allow us to in the future travel further into the underdark now 
Luke, your character, Floparm, the, mm-hmm. the, the goblin, made a very special friend during these adventures, didn't, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, he was assigned one of the drows to guard him because Floparm is five years old, but his birthday is coming up soon. So please get your cards ready for Floparm. Zark is very excited. He's going to uh, make himself the shiniest card for for Floparm that he possibly can. I mean, honestly, every character should just be like, oh, hey, here's what my character's birthday is. Let's let's make events around it because it makes Christian have to do both more work and less work. It's great. We're, we're, we're doing nothing for Floparm's birthday. I, I hate to break it to you. Um, uh, um, I mean, I mean th- they can exist. I'm not saying that you can't have a birthday. Oh, the party is going to do something for Flopfarm's birthday. I tell you this now. We have seen what's happened on Cleaver's holidays, which have all been completely messed up since she is stuck in the Shadowfell forever. Forever, yes. Forever, never to be returned because the danger that she poses to the Outlands is greater um, than that of the Faerim. To the entire multiverse at this point. (laughs) Uh, Anyways, but yeah, so uh, the the Glimmernite Caves, um, you know, kind of introduced this this new faction to the Outlands. These these drow who seem to have some connection to the Unjanath do not like the Unjanath very surprised that the Unjanath aren't on the surface anymore. So the, the drow may play a bigger role in the coming months of the, the, the campaign, supposing that everyone stays alive, you know, but, um, yeah. So some, some new, new factions and, uh, then going back to the terror team now between, you know, the, the, Sunday group, the Buddy Brigade, and the Terror Team, some stuff happened on Tuesday, but that was... We're going to save that for the very end, because it was a a long combat session that took up two two whole um, two whole nights. Um, so, before we get to that, we should talk about the last thing that happened in the Outlands, which was... Um, and this one, this actually set up another big story complication um earlier in the campaign there was a group of pirates led by one captain eliza fortune um these pirates they they had a massive ship called the dragon's mall built of dragon's bone um and the the pirates had were a minor antagonist in the uh the outlands and they basically got their butts handed to them by the Avalith Doo-Wop um, and fled. Well, the pirates want to come back to the Outlands, and so they requested a parlay with the leader of the company, a man named Artis Ellendale. Uh, now, Artis was not the original leader of the company, but he is the current head as his niece, Gloria Ellendale, is, you know, you know, in a coma due to this poison from this attack by the Clockwork Army. Oh, we should we should also probably mention the other big thing. Uh, I forgot to, to you know with the Drow. Um, this these Soul Spiders that who um, seem to be working to destabilize these the city of the Drow underneath the Outlands. Um, they made contact 
with Murgle Rackhook and gave him the poison that was used to put Gloria Ellendale into a poison uh, into a coma. Mm. So there's there's a connection there as well. So you know there's these kind of like spider cultists who are lurking underneath the Outlands, and they seem to be working with other factions to make make some people miserable. But getting back to uh, the pirates. So Artis Ellendale uh, requested a meeting with Captain Fortune and they met out and uh, surprisingly they met in the earned foothills. And while the terror team was accompanying them, the artist learned what Captain Fortune really wanted with the Outlands. It turned out and the party kind of knew this already Captain Fortune had made a deal with a devil, um, and that, uh, in exchange for her soul, um, she was given supernatural powers. She was given the Dragon's Maul, this massive boat that defies comprehension. Uh, she was given futuristic technology. The pirates all run around with pistols. Um, however, that contract is coming due, and not only does it affect her, it also will impact her entire crew, as that contract also means that her crew's souls will also be lost. At first, Captain Fortune thought that, you know, well, I had a good run, but then she discovered something. There is a gate to the Nine Hells that is located somewhere in the Outlands, in a place known as Caldrol, an ancient dwarven city um, that the, the company also knows about. And so she needs access to that city so that she can save her soul, and that is the souls of her crew. Now, Captain Fortune has something that the company needs. She has a means to get to the Clockwork Army, because the, the controller of the Clockwork Army, the players have discovered, um, they he basically has some sort of like submarine or nautiloid that's in the ocean, uh, safe from harm, basically where the, the company can't get to them. Well, Captain Fortune has the means to get un into the ocean and to attack that nautiloid and to kind of set up this confrontation. And the company also holds the keys to the Outlands. So they both had something that each other wanted. So the pirates and the company have this deal um, in which um, the pirates will help the company deal with the Clockwork Army, and in exchange, the company will let the pirates into the Outlands with the rider that when Captain Fortune decides to start poking around into possible doors into hell, the company should be involved with that. That was when what might have been the most shocking moment of, at least in a few months, happened in the campaign. Artis Allendale, who's kind of this gruff, no-nonsense, but generally good person, who actually seems to be a pretty decent leader, uh, he had his head blown off by a tracker devil, a, a devil um, with the ability to shoot concussive crossbow bolts. Uh, of course, the terror team, being the terror team, was not very happy about this. Um, and uh, they killed the devil, who the devil was actually trying to kill Captain Fortune. In the aftermath of that, you know, after this big fight, you know, in which they're trying to chase a devil that can turn invisible, can shoot concussive blasts, and, you know, lots of other nasty things. Artis 
suddenly appeared and they saw his head get literally explode. And Artis appeared to be fine without any explanation given. And he seemed to just kind of brush off the like, hey, weren't you dead a moment ago? Like super dead? And he's like, no, I'm fine. So definitely something weird going on with Artis. So had Artis regrown a head or is he still strangely headless? No, he's he's got a head. He's so got a head once head. again. Is, is it a normal size head or is it like the head in Men in Black when they shut the one guy off of his head? No, it, it's a normal sized head. The only difference is, and we've, I guess we never described what he looks like on the podcast. Artis uh, keeps half of his face obscured by a veil. Um, and you can occasionally see, you know, when the veil moves, you can see some scarring underneath that. And that scar seems to have grown. Um, so now it's covering, you know, the, the scar basically grew by another inch. So it's much more visible now. But besides that, he looks looks the same, acts the same. It's a big question. Why is Artis Ellendale still alive? Especially when we all saw his head literally blow up. Personally, I, I think we should blow off his head again just to see what happens the next time. Oh, yeah. Flopbarm would love to see that. It could be his say, gift I, for uh, Flopbarm's birthday. At, at some point, Cleaver would have also been into that. Cleaver, I was about to say, Luke was like very strongly suggesting, let's just murder Artis. Because Artis like, came in and was like, yeah, things need to change around here. We need to bring... You guys have basically been given way too much leeway under my niece's reign. And like Cleaver was like, yeah, we should, he should probably die. We should just kill him. And then she actually had a meeting with him and he was like, hey, you know what you're doing here. Uh, do you want a budget to run the kitchen effectively and to help us out with bigger projects? I think the work that you're doing is good. And Cleaver was like, Oh, I see how this is. Yes, let's do that. Let's do that. <laughs> and then Cleaver got sucked into the Shadowfell. Oh, man. So some big lingering mysteries happened. But you know what wasn't a big lingering mystery? The Les of the Void. For the last five weeks, the Toon Squad has had a sword of Damocles hanging above them as Velez warned them that if they did not find the Black, Drags, Black Dragon Trixie Alana, also known as Trixie, um, and bring the dragon to her, Velez would kill a lot of people in the Outlands. And for weeks, the Toon Squad went searching for the Black Dragon. They found the Black Dragon. They gathered allies to go and basically stab Velez in the back because they knew... She was bad business. And it all came down to an epic two-night fight. So, Jeff, what was your plan going into this fight? What was the what was the Toon Squad's plan here? So we, we had much, much discussion in our uh, kind of D&D party slack. Uh, and we eventually determined that Ferris, uh, little, little gnome that he is, uh, was going to have one of these uh, spell scrolls which were uh, acquired with the last Shatter Kai mission and uh, Ferris is going to be using the spell scroll to banish uh, Velez and so we are going to have to protect the caster of that for a whole minute uh, aka 10 rounds of combat 
so we just kind of tried to, you know, keep him kind of center of, of the party uh, and protect him going into this. Uh, and as the party, you know, went into it and approached Velez, uh, I believe we had Jack Mander trying to... Uh... I'm not sure what he was trying, honestly. <laughs> uh, I think so... he tried to talk, talk uh, Velez down somehow. Yeah, yeah. So you know, you guys had you guys had a pretty lengthy discussion in the the week leading up to this. I strongly suggested to the party, like, hey, have a plan. Like, don't go into this fight half cocked. That's how you end up with dead people. And you guys had a good plan. You you guys had a very good plan. Yeah, we were you know, going the to. Original... Go ahead. We we are going to uh, have the caster cast that thing if stuff started to go sideways uh we bring along uh, our our friendly bicorn of our character brahm and send him on his way uh and then i always held it in the back of my mind okay if that goes sideways in some form or another uh my character zark is an aracocra which so he's a big bird person he just grabbed ferris and go uh but that first part of it did not let's say that didn't go yeah, you guys. As we, as we were going to do originally. Yeah, so when the fight started, so how, how this was set up. So how banishment works as a spell. Uh, it, it shunts back the subject of the spell back to either a harmless demiplane for one minute, or if the person originally, or creature, originally came from another plane, it would permanently banish them back to that plane. Now that doesn't mean that you know, Velez can't come back to the Outlands, but it would basically send her back for the time being until she found a way to get back here. So, it takes a minute to go into effect, which is the equivalent of 10 rounds of combat in D&D. So, the, the, their plan was basically, we need to keep Ferris, the caster, safe for one minute, because it's a concentration spell, and in D&D that means that if the person who casts that spell takes damage. They need to make a concentration check to see if they can hold on to that spell or if it dissipates. So the plan was keep Ferris safe for a minute. That That's basically it. And so they're like, we have a bicorn. The bicorn can run 100 feet per turn. That's far faster than anything else, supposedly. Let's put Ferris on the bicorn. Uh, we'll we'll send Brom on the bicorn, and also, you know, if things look really dire, Zark, Jeff's character, also has a flying speed of fifty feet. So the three of them can take, you know, go off in one direction, while the remaining three members of the party can kind of like make a a fighting retreat or whatever. And then for some reason, you guys didn't stick to the plan. It turned into more of that whatever. Yeah. Time. So the the complication was was so in addition to Velez who got banished, the banishment went perfectly. You guys also had a vampire knight to deal with and a glomwing, this kind of like um necrotic fell beast. Uh think uh Lord of the Rings, the 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 monsters that the Nazgûl ride after they lose their horses. So the glomwing starts trying to get to Ferris. 
the vampire knights starts trying to get to Ferris, and dozens of ghouls start to rush in and also try to get to Ferris. And you guys are like, oh, let's let's try to hold the line there. It was it was not great. It, it was not not the best way to go, considering we had a plan and then uh, we just didn't go. And after a few turns, uh, I eventually just decided as Zark to say, uh, this is getting too dangerous for Ferris. We've got another several rounds to go and they're encroaching. So I'm going to grab Ferris and just go. Uh, and so I initially tried to, uh, as Zark grabbed Ferris, take him away, keep him protected. And what what I kept in kind of my back pocket from a prior mission, uh, let's say I did something kind of similar where I carried, uh, <laughs> may have carried a blue dragon. And I like I like the teller one that I designed a little little thing like a little baby carrier, uh, but for you know, this child-sized... Uh, yeah, he this, was, this kid, he was polymorphed as a child. Yeah. Uh, so I, I like to think that he made a little dragon jorn uh, to carry carry this thing. So from that mission, Zark happened to have a dimension door scroll, uh, which allows uh, the user and one willing uh, character with him to just go like uh to depart away like 500 feet all at once and so i, I grabbed ferris and i went i'm going to use this as mentioned door scroll i'm now 500 feet south and i thought great we are super far away now and then the glomwing took off yes the glomwing had an ability that allowed it to avoid uh, opportunity attacks. So the Glomwing actually was able to basically take off immediately after you. Now, the Glomwing was slightly faster than you, but had you just kept flying away, you would have been fine. But that's not what you did, is it? Yeah, so the against the better part of uh, Zark, I like to think he's kind of cowardly. Like he, He's really only in it for himself to uh, survive, but when you're also carrying this gnome who's, you know, got a better better heart than uh, Zark has, uh, kept urging me to start turning back towards the party, and and so after after much discussion, trying to convince Christian, like, no, we're we're taking this very large arc uh, back around towards the party, we started doing that. Yeah, and then you decided that. In order to try to deal with the Glomwing, you guys would use your ace in the hole, which was Trixie. Yes, and so uh, we had Ferris just calling out, just yelling, Trixie! Trixie! And then, uh, how, how did you describe it, Christian, when uh, Trixie kind of morphed back out of her uh, goblin form? Yeah, she basically, so, you know, in, in our campaigns, dragons have the ability to polymorph. That's not something that is standard in 5th edition, but it was in previous editions, and I, I rather like that. Um, so, um, basically, one minute, there was nothing, and it was as if a, a, a black dragon suddenly apparated out of the out of the ether um, and immediately started flying towards the Glomwing, because Ferris and Trixie actually have uh, a, a, a unlikely friendship 
of sorts, um, or at least an established relationship. The issue was, was the, this entire battle was taking place in the Sharn Barrows. Velez, you know, was based out of the Sharn Barrows, but she wasn't the only one. And I mentioned this at the beginning, as, as the party made their way to the side of this confrontation, they, they passed Cartram's Tower of Blackstone. Now, Cartram and Velez do not like each other. You can listen more about that in our previous episode. But, you know, Velez and Cartram are not friends. However, they both hate Trixie. And so when the Black Dragon appeared and started, uh, you know, chasing after the Glomwing and appeared in the air several hundred feet away from Cartram's home, Cartram sprung his trap and appeared uh, with a large cloud of bats moving uh, into the fray. And so at the end of the first night, there was Zark holding Ferris, getting chased by a Glomwing, who was getting chased by Trixie, who was getting chased by Cartrum and a giant cloud of bats. Meanwhile, on the ground, the Vampire Knight was carving up the rest of the Toon Squad. Uh, of of the four ground-bound members, earth-bound members, um, three of them had less than ten hit points remaining. Two had fallen unconscious at various points in time. Uh, Jack Mander had dodged death several times. Only Brom was standing, and the only reason Brom was standing was because he used up all of his psychic energy, because he's a Psyonite, um, basically to keep himself alive and to dissipate things. Things were looking very grim for the Toon Squad. And then things kind of got worse as, you know, the Toon Squad lost a member of their, their party. The Bicorn. Yeah, poor, poor Bicorn. The Bicorn who actually went and saved the cleric's life. He, he charged in and healed her and killed some, you know, ghouls that were about to rip her to shreds. And he unfortunately... Um, you know, the Shatter Kai during this part of the fight, you know, started trying to throw up like bubbles of darkness to, to, you know, grant some relief to the party. But the Vampire Knight, uh, had an angle on the two most vulnerable members of the party. And so Brom came charging in on his bicorn to fight the Vampire Knight head on. And during that confrontation, uh, the, the, um, ghouls in the area, got to the bicorn, paralyzed the bicorn, ripped the bicorn shreds. And there went our poor bicorn, who originally was the escape plan. And yeah. all of a sudden we had no more bicorn. No more bicorn. But despite all of this nonsense, things turned out okay for you guys. The bicorn died, but everyone else managed to escape. What was the big moment that kind of turned things on their head? Uh, so while, while all this was going on, uh, you know, be, besides the fact that we had a week to think about it and to consider, you know, we're, we're protecting Ferris. That seems to be going okay for the time being in the air. Uh, everyone on the ground doesn't necessarily need to stay there. Uh, and so meanwhile, in the air, you know, this, this chain of characters all, all chasing each other, uh, we had uh, 
as Kartram had sprung his attack on Trixie, was attacking her, uh, it turned that, that led us to the point where you know we protected ourselves for an extra you know couple rounds until the banishment spell would be permanent. After that, you know, one minute of time, uh, but then we needed to kind of hightail it back towards uh, Trixie and Kartram. Where uh, Christian, do you want to describe how that? sneak attack kind of occurred because he kind of sprung out of this cloud of bats so i i explained to the party that you know because both kartram as a vampire and trixie as a black dragon both have uh, a vi- uh, access to things called legendary actions um you know due to the number of moving parts initially i wasn't going to use those legendary actions and i told them I will tell you when both characters and both characters would get those legendary actions at the same time when they would when those would come into play. And so Kartram was in his bat form. There was this cloud of bats moving at about 80 feet per turn uh, towards where Trixie was. And then Kartram used his legendary actions when they when he was close enough to basically double move as a bat land on Trixie, and then on the beginning of his next turn, he transformed himself back into his humanoid form and began attacking Trixie on her back. This was problematic for a few reasons. While vampires can't fly in Dungeons & Dragons, vampires do have the ability to spider climb, which basically allows them to walk on any surface um, or climb on any surface, even if it's upside down. So how that is typically interpreted when it comes to mounting a creature is that, excuse me, uh, is that they have advantage on uh, checks to stay on that creature. Um, Also, when you are mounting a creature in that, that form, when you are like climb on top of a creature to attack them, you get advantage on those attacks. So there is Kartrum dealing uh, about 40 points of damage a turn um to to Trixie uh, over the course of the round and also Trixie couldn't fight back. So Trixie was taking a lot of damage. Um and she was panicking because you know basically you know her nemesis was on her back just basically trying to rip her head off. So during this Zark and Ferris had uh, maneuvered themselves into a position where they could enter the fray. But what what are you going to do? What is a level 5 wizard and a level 5 fighter going to do in a fight against a vampire and a dragon? So about this point, uh, on, our, on our Zoom as we're playing this, I receive uh, a message from, uh, from uh, Eddie, who plays Ferris, and he said, like, just start like booking it towards Trixie and uh, Kartram. And I went, okay, we're going to do that. And then as uh, as he would explain, uh, he's able to uh, use a, is it a maneuver? Is it a spell? But a uh, thunder step. Uh, but he can take uh, a creature like his size or smaller, which, you know, a gnome's pretty small to start uh but he had more of a plan on top of that so as uh, zark and ferris are flying towards this uh, the closer and closer we get ferris just starts screaming 
at Trixie, uh, turn into a goblin and just repeatedly yelling this. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure what, what may have been going through Trixie's head as, you know, she's panicking, but uh, I imagine that with the little bit of rapport that uh, Ferris and Trixie had, that would, uh, you know, hopefully turn out. So what we wound up doing uh, is I, I flew up and basically just dropped Ferris like on top of Trixie. And at that point, he just kind of clung on to Trixie and yelled, turn into a goblin, uh, which I believe she eventually you know, accessed and went ahead and did that. And basically, Ferris then did a thunder step. And I believe it just makes you essentially disappear uh, to anyone who was like right there. So that accomplished a lot of things like right there. It detached Trixie from Kartram. Kartram was now otherwise going to be falling as his uh, humanoid self. And uh, then, you know, from there, we, we had been 40 feet up in the air up until this point. And so Ferris and Trixie could just go right back to the ground and like away from Kartram. And this like really turned that whole situation on its head. It was it was a brilliant, um, it was a really brilliant play by by Ferris. Um, uh, Trixie was within a round of dying, like she would have died had another round passed, and you guys hadn't done anything. And you know, Ferris utilized the um, he, he 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 utilized the lore. You know, that, you know, dragons can polymorph at will. He utilized a good point of strategy because, you know, he had been sidelined this entire fight because he had, you know, he's a he's a wizard that uses a lot of control spells and those control spells usually require concentration. So he didn't have a lot of like in his arsenal to use. Not to mention so, he was, you know, we were hundreds of feet away from enemies all during this time. So. Uh, he didn't have anything remotely in range. Yeah. So, because of that, Trixie and Ferris uh, were on the ground safely. Kartrum had to turn into either a bat or he actually turned into a cloud of mist because he knew he was not in a... Uh, his his ambush against Trixie had failed, and Kartrum is not the type of vampire or person, or I don't know what you'd call him, uh, he is a vampire. He's not the sort of person to um, take unnecessary risks. You know, Trixie's probably not going to go anywhere. He will have his chance for revenge. And also, uh, he and Ferris had quite a showdown in midair as all this was going down. So Ferris definitely has himself a new nemesis, as does the company as a whole, as Cartrum will certainly be a force to be reckoned with in the weeks to come. But, Velez was banished. The Toon Squad is all alive. Minus one Bicorn. Yeah, minus one Bicorn. And, um, you guys are off to, guys are free to do shenanigans for, for a hot minute. Time to find more villains. Yeah. On accident. Um, and you guys got a couple of cool things. 
Uh, Ferris received uh, Trixie's blessing, so he has a, a couple of little like minor dragon abilities now. And you guys got a map to a lo location, which I believe you're going to explore next week. So that that should be um, that should be pretty interesting. I I was very happy about how the Toon Squad came out of that. You guys. In typical Toon Squad fashion, you guys made a mess, and then you figured out how to solve it. It's amazing that our whole party of uh, player characters came out of that alive. Like, we, we've been joking for weeks. We we're preparing all of our backup characters to come in after that, just assuming that, you know, it could go real, real bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I you guys... Uh, you know, I specifically held with the Shatter Kai, the thing that I did to help you guys was I specifically kept their, like, darkness spells, like, in the back pocket, so that, you know, I figured when you guys actually were in a tough situation, yeah, I'd start giving you guys access to those, and you needed it. But, you know, other than that, you know, you guys just basically came up with good strategies. So... That is what's been happening in our Outlands campaign. Uh, that's what's what's been going on in the Outlands for the past three weeks. Because it's been a while since we, we recorded an episode. Partially because I think the first week I wasn't feeling great. And then we were just stuck with a cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah. Uh, if we didn't exactly want to do an uh, episode in which like, hey, all this stuff's happening. We don't know how it's going to end. Mm -hmm. And if you're saying, wait, but the Buddy Brigade only went on two adventures, that's because we got preempted by the Super Bowl. Yep, I had to work the Super Bowl. So, uh, part of what happens when you are a you know pop culture writer. Did you did you make the touchdown? No. Were, were there I wrote about sharks. Uh, I wrote about Sam Jackson's Fortnite commercial. That's that's what I did. And I had a lot of fun making, you know, talking about the halftime show. I let our, uh, I let our five-year-old stay up to watch the uh, halftime show, because uh, when I was a kid, when I was his age, that's when I would, that's when I actually start paying attention to like stuff like that. So we let him stay up to watch that, and he was just like, "What is even going on?" Um, it was a good halftime show. I was, I was very impressed by it actually. I just watched my big fat Greek wedding. Okay, then. And on that note, let's jump into something completely different. Now, we like to, in our uh, in Tales from the Outlands, we always like to talk a little bit about the lore that comes up in the campaign. There's a lot of lore that gets thrown about because this is basically three D&D campaigns wrapped into one. So there's a lot of like cross-mingling parts. So we like to take a little bit of time to talk about some of the lore that gets brought up in the campaign. I always let our player, their guest player, choose. And what did you choose this week, Jeff? This week, as a player who appreciates uh, the sillier side of our, our campaign and for going for those sorts of missions, uh, like perhaps March of the Penguins and things of that nature, but we also have Cats for the Cat God. Cats, Cats for, for the, the Cat, cat God. God. So... In the earliest days of the campaign, when I was when when I was sitting and writing up what would eventually become the Outlands, 
I, I have a list of campaign D&D campaign ideas uh, that I keep. And a lot of those ideas got incorporated into the Outlands. That's why it's a little bit of a spastic campaign with a lot of like seemingly unconnected parts. It's because I took like five or six different D&D story ideas and wrapped them in together into one thing. One of those, all I wrote down was Cats for the Cat God. Cats for the Cat God. Uh, so in the Outlands, the players have discovered... That you know now, the Outlands is a place of powerful magic. It is a is a uh, a convergence of the planes, a place where all of the planes of the multiverse have the ability to intersect. And it's this place of great power. And one of the entities that seems to be wanting to do something with that power is the mysterious cat she. You know now, if you are familiar. With uh, Irish myth, you know you'll 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 know what the cat she is. It is a a powerful feline entity, a powerful uh, you know Gaelic god of the cats. If you're familiar with Final Fantasy VII, Kate's it. Yes, yes, cat. Uh, you know it's uh, yeah. Um, this this powerful feline entity uh, a, a while ago, and like probably the third or fourth. Uh, session uh, the party discovered a mysterious temple standing on the cliffs overlooking a beach and then it was promptly ignored for months like literally months no one paid attention to this thing now we knew that there were these uh you know there 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 were like intelligent cat creatures um i'm i'm forgetting let me pull it up because i forget what tippy toes exactly is cats are the cat she is a Tibbet, which is a magical creature who can switch between humanoid and cat form. And so basically she looks like a, uh, a kind of like hobbity cat person when she's in humanoid form. And then she can turn into a cat. So we know that, you know, she showed up very early in the campaign as well. But no one really thought to look, what, what is this temple? Until I brought up, I was like, you know, guys, you know, someone made some joke about like, Oh, you know, like, you know, I'm surprised that Christian doesn't have, like, you know, hasn't made some sort of cat reference. I'm like, you guys just haven't found it yet. And then people start looking. <laughs> uh, so, uh, they explored, the party explored this cat temple and discovered that the cat she had tasked the adventurers with retrieving five cat idols. Now, these cat idols were hidden across the Outlands at some point in time in the past. Uh, each one of the idols are modeled after one of the five cat merchants of coin who are associated with a powerful artifact known as the Coin of the Cat, which summons these cat merchants to um, you know, uh, sell their wares. Each cat merchant has its own different um, specialty. Um, and so um, each of these idols are modeled after these famous cats, which are famous in Christian Hoffer campaigns. These are not established D&D things. And um, yeah, so there's this kind of like a side quest, you know, involving giant cats. Now, Jeff, you've been involved in both cat fights, haven't you? Uh, yes. Or cat I, missions? No, I think cat fights is, is a fun way to describe it, although they're more cat puzzles and cat fights. 
Yeah, so so what have you had to do to retrieve these idols thus far? So I believe our, our primary missions, you know, after our, we were initially tasked to try and retrieve all of these idols, and that was the first one, the uh, giant kind of snake rope toy. Yeah, it was a, it was a giant ribbon known as the serpent from the sky. And so, you know, it was all you could do if, if you were fighting it, but to try it and, you know, think, I'm going to fight this. And I, I think uh, that did not go uh, quite so well. I think with Zark, I thought, I'm going to climb up to the very top of this. Uh, not climb, rather, but fly. Uh, but it, I believe in, in this case, it was too dark to, uh, you know, kind of locate what happened or what was what could, could exist beyond uh, the ribbon toy. Yeah, it was it was a giant ribbon uh, that descended from the sky, and basically a giant spotlight shone down on the party, and they were supposed to attack the ribbon. And so you know, Zark, who has a flying speed, decides to fly up to see what's controlling the ribbon, but the nature of these prizes or where these 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 puzzles prevented him from actually getting to the bottom of it uh, but top. you defeated the ribbon you defeated the ribbon which that was a good thing and you retrieved the first idol what was the second idol uh, i believe in our second mission we chased a giant mysterious uh red dot yep the the thing which cannot be caught yes and i i think we we spent multiple turns all just you know pawing at it thinking ah i've got it oh no i don't now uh until i believe uh i believe it may have been brahm that finally decided you know what i'm just not going to try and get this thing and that was the key to solving that puzzle was you had to basically lose interest in the laser pointer and that shows showed because they were trying to demonstrate that they possessed uh, the 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 will of cat, you know, uh, the the will of a cat. And of course, the best way of showing that you have the will of a cat is to simply be stubborn and pretend to ignore things. Yes, and some some of my uh, favorite things to go along with these missions was, uh, you know, you mentioned that these were, you know, not not any sort of D&D cats, but these are actually modeled after uh, some of the characters' personal house cats, uh, which I, I have quite enjoyed uh, up to this point. Yes, well, one of your cats actually, you know, made a, made an appearance. Yes, my, my, my dear, annoying, heavy, chubby, squawking uh, cat Teddy happened to turn up and... Uh, and you know, there, there's nothing better than you know fan service pointed at at your party, uh, which you know I, I was eating up. Just part of why I, I love the cats for the cat god here too. Cats for the cat god. Uh, be able to just engage in a little bit, a little bit of extra silliness with uh, these missions. And I'm, I'm really curious. You, you described uh, these five cat merchants of coin, and I'm realizing now that I may need to start saving up some more. Uh, to try and reach the goal of uh, retrieving the five cat idols. 
Yeah, well, and uh, uh, another cat site was recently discovered. Mm-hmm. Yes, and for the next several weeks, you'll see me clamoring to say, let's do the cat god mission, guys. Come on. Yeah. They're like, let's <laughs> do serious things like uh, like a mysterious Shatter Kai map. Like, that sounds cool, too. But also, cats. So, what what sort of boons are you hoping to get here? Because when you retrieved... The you know the when you retrieved the um, the second idol, uh, the the Toon Squad was given you know a, a boon from from the you know from the cats themselves. Um, yeah. In this case, it was the the black cat's luck, which you guys I think everyone has expended that. Yeah, I do believe everyone's used it. I think I went first, like the very next mission, just to go. Ah, sure, let's just use this, because uh, I have a tendency to forget about things from you know weeks past i keep a big long uh one note to keep track of these things but inevitably i'll forget but yes it has come in handy several times uh throughout the course of our missions ever since then yeah so um so i guess you know you know so what 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 other sort of boons are are you hoping that you're going to get get out of these like side quests and what what do you think is the true purpose of collecting these idols you know it, it's hard to say so far we, we've had two missions uh, that involved feeding you know the giant ribbon and then uh, ignoring the red dot uh, so you know it could be after all five missions maybe it's just nothing because you know cats cats what do they care uh, but I'm, I'm probably just hoping to you know be able to gain uh some additional maybe agility uh you know if it's not enough that zark can fly and do acrobatics i need him to be uh get get an extra boost in uh, agility in some form in the future too cats are the cat god and a nice pair of cat ears do, do you trust the cat god yeah i have no reason to distrust the cat god so far you know so far we've you know, kind of listen to the mission and we've passed the first two uh, missions without, you know, there, there have been no shenanigans, if you will. Uh, so, you know, I, I'm going to say I, I trust the cat god so far. But, you know, if you're asking me that question, that might say, can the cat god really be trusted? And to which I'll say, we'll just have to find out. Would it surprise you to know that there is an NPC with existing connections to the cat god? That would surprise me. So we, we we've had a don't we have a we've had a NPC around that was like part part cat? Is that what yeah, I heard? Tippy toes. Tippy toes. Yeah. That's the one we're talking about here. But that's not one of the people that are. Uh, at the outpost, uh, she is. This one is. She might be the NPC that I'm talking about, but she also might not be the NPC that I'm talking about. Sounds like I've got some investigating to do to start finding uh, our mysterious connection to the cat god. Uses two weeks of downtime. There we go. <laughs> well. That's about all the time that we have for this uh, for tonight. Uh, I I will leave the episode uh, with that little lingering nugget. 
Um, but uh, thank you very much for uh, listening to this episode of Tales from the Outlands. Um, thank you, Jeff, for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. Where can you be found online if you wish to be found online? You know, you don't really need to follow me because I'm not very active on Twitter, but you can find me on Twitter at Big Tacosaur. And Luke, where can people find you? You can find me and everything that I do on Twitter at, at Coltreg. That's K-O-L-T-R-E-G. Though right now, because I am looking at three different jobs, my Twitter account is turned to private mode. But, you know, just like feel free to follow me. And as long as you're not a suspicious person, I am more than fine with you following me. You can also just go to my website, lukehair.com, where I'm trying to keep an active archive of the myriad of things that I do. Which includes new episodes. Well, are episodes of the Tales from the Outlands posted on your website still? No. uh, The pilot season ended there, so it's now just Tales from the Outlands. That way I'm not biting into the new feeds uh, views. That, uh, that, that, I, I accept that. Uh, you can find the website, you can find new episodes on uh, talesfromtheoutlands.com. You can find me on Twitter at cbus, uh, where I talk a lot about Dungeons and Dragons, this campaign specifically, about wider D&D news, and also about various assorted other things. Um, once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. Uh, we hope that you tell your friends about us, and, uh, you know, uh, keep on listening. Because um, also, feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Spotify or anything like that. Because the more reviews we get, the more people that have, you know, that affects the algorithms and allows us to be seen by more people. Math, um, math, math. Uh, also follow us on Twitter at OutlandsPod. Yes, yes, thank you. I totally forgot. We do have a Twitter account, uh, Outlands at OutlandsPod. And it'll start getting more active here. I'm going to start posting links to... Uh, we have a, a database where we talk about all the lore and stuff like that. So I'm going to start linking um, to that. To various articles? Yep. Might as well yep. start uh, doing that. You can also find the link to that at the bottom of every uh, new episode of the show. Excellent. Well, mm-hmm. uh, until next time, uh, once again, thank you for listening and keep exploring. And remember... With a bit of work and planning, you too can become pun pun.